Hello everybody, this is Brett Stewart. Before we dig into this jukebox roundtable for October of 2016, I do want to throw a shout out at the top of the program to one of our sponsors. This show really can't happen without those sponsors, especially the roundtable, because the roundtable is additional programming on top of the main show. That sponsor, as usual, is Plectone. That is P-L-E-C-T-O-N-E. They're a small but growing guitar products company with a simple goal, helping you create great music. Their first guitar pick product is a new twist on an old aspiration to make what they call a double strike pick. It's called the Double Pulse, and it allows guitarists to strike each string twice, producing richer, fuller, and brighter tones. If you've heard me talk about this before on the show and you're a guitarist, hopefully you already have one. And if you don't, you need to go out and get one. Or if you're a newcomer to the program, you need to go check them out, plectone.com. I have a couple of these. I use them in the studio. I use them while gigging. I travel with them. They are wonderful picks. They're a really cool little gadget to have in your toolkit as a musician. I highly recommend it, and I think you should check them out. All right, thanks again, Plectone. We appreciate your support. Enjoy this Jukebox Roundtable. got the jukebox you're listening to the jukebox roundtable hosted by brett stewart release the energy to kill this new form steam to take us to our next home seeds of life to start a new dawn catch a spirit and ride catch a spirit and ride catch a spirit Hello everybody, Brett Stewart here, and welcome to the October Jukebox Roundtable. We are recording this on October 22nd, 2016, and it should hit your feeds on that day. Now, if you're not familiar with the Jukebox Roundtable, it is somewhat different from the monthly Jukebox, where we play music from independent artists. Instead, on the Roundtable, I bring together uh, people in the industry, people who are fellow podcasters, to culminate a discussion about all sorts of musical topics. We're going to talk about stuff that's mainstream. We're going to talk about things that are more obscure. We're going to have a discussion segment and all of those good things. It's a really unique way to extend the conversation that is being had on the main jukebox episode every single month. And of course, you can expect that in your feed as usual on October 25th, which I believe is next Tuesday. I have two guests with me this week. I'm very excited to have both of them with me. I've podcasted with them before. They're wonderful podcasters. The first is Phil Rude. He's a cartoonist, illustrator, and teaching artist. You can find the work he does on his website, philrude.com. That last name is R-O-O-D. Phil is slated to work on an upcoming show on the Blazing Caribou Studios Network. It's a program called Sketching Comedy with Carrie Sims. Uh, Blazing Caribou is the same network that I do Geek Cinema Society on, so check what I, what I do out there, too. <laughs> uh, Phil, thanks so much for being on the network, man. Uh, thank you for having me. Being on the show, not the network. You are on the network, I though. Am You're on, on Blazing Caribou, well. and uh, it's, it's really awesome to 
see you growing as a podcaster over there and doing so many cool things as well. Well, I'm new to it, and Blazing Caribou is giving me a lot of opportunity. Uh, I'm learning a lot. I'm guesting a lot. I've been on Geek Cinema um, and just kind of making the rounds and uh, getting a lot of getting a lot of opportunity to do some new stuff over there. So it's been really exciting for me too. That's awesome. And I'm so glad for that because one of the most important things you can do as a person who is entering podcasting is a be on as many podcasts as you can and B be as uh, all of those podcasts should be very different podcasts because it gives you an opportunity to interact with different types of people and different types of audiences. And uh, this is, have you ever been on a music podcast? Is this a first in the bank for that? Uh, yeah, this is a first for that too. Uh, you know, I, I talk music a lot. I listen to music a lot, but I've never done it in a formatted way. So uh, yeah, this is, this is new and uh, I'm looking forward to this as well. Very cool. And joining us as well is the aforementioned Carrie Sims. She is the co-founder of Blazing Caribou Studios, a co-host, creator, and producer of the popular Trivia Geeks program on that network. She also co-hosts the occasional show, Sketching Comedy, and an upcoming show called Brokebot Mountain, a Westworld fan cast, which I believe Phil is also on, and she also hosts Feast on History. Needless to say, Carrie is a very prolific podcast. Thanks for being on the program, Carrie. Oh, you're more than welcome, Brett. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to have you on. You're doing so many cool things within the podcasting realm. I mean, goodness, your introduction is just an endless list of fascinating podcasts. So uh, if people are interested in your Brokebot Mountain, a Westworld fan cast, when can people expect that to be out? I really, we're looking at this week, um, we're going to start popping that out. So uh, we're writing up the shows right now. We're going to kind of catch up with, uh, you know, a couple of the shows and we're going to put it out. Phil and I are pretty good about uh, just getting it done, you know, so kind of had a brainchild of like, you know, I need to do this podcast. I'm just such in love with this new show. And I'm like, I need a place to put it. And we do have the occasional show, which I really enjoy doing. Um, you know, we put it, we made the occasional show up for um, almost like an afterthought of Trivia Geeks, because what happens is we have all these great guests come on Trivia Geeks, and we don't really find out a lot about them. And what we really wanted to do was have a place to kind of put them afterwards and kind of go, you know, uh, over and interview them and, you know, see what they're really up to and what kind of people they are. So uh, the occasional show has always been about that. And sometimes with the occasional show, because it's occasional, um, we can do different topics and stuff. And I was thinking about it and I said, oh, we could do a Westworld. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to do this for like a long time. <laughs> so right. I'm like... I, you know, I said to my partner, I said, you know, I kind of want to do a Westworld podcast. And he's like, I thought we said no more podcasts for six months. And I said, yeah, but it's my podcast. And <laughs> basically, <laughs> he's like, do what you need to do. So we just basically, you know, brain thought it up and are going through getting the logos done. We already got the RSS feed set up and we'll have it running next week. Guaranteed. That's awesome. Well, one of the things I'm going to try to do this weekend is watch the most recent episodes of it. I have yet to see it, and I know we'll, we won't go down the Westworld rabbit hole here too much. We but could. I did, we, we could. could. We totally could. Yeah. But, but I know I, uh, you just did it on Geek yeah. Cinema Society. Well, that's, yeah, that's is actually – we had Phil on, right. uh, so everything is connecting here. Oh, my God. And <laughs> we had spooky. Phil on to talk about the first Westworld film, which, right. of course, this HBO series is based on. Well, and it's Phil's fault, too, because he had said something about <laughs> 
about the recoils on Facebook. And I responded like, I love this show. Like, I mean, it's been a long time since I've had that feeling on a, on a show that I'm just like, this is so interesting. Like, I need more of this show. I, and don't get me wrong. I love Game of Thrones and things like that. But this one is almost like it's intellectually intriguing. And I'm just like so into it. So he started something on Facebook. And then it was like, boom, boom, boom. Within a day, I'm like, yeah, we're doing a podcast. You're like, okay. Well, I like how when you say that you had the idea, it was this bolt of inspiration. But then later on, when I come into the picture, it's my fault. So <laughs> I, I'm not really sure how that works. But um, it's, it's like having a child fault. together, I guess. Right, exactly. It's when the like, child is bad, you it's yours. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, if everyone wants to check out all of those aforementioned shows for the most part, including Geek Cinema, they're over on BlazingCaribouStudios.com. And of course, you can find those on all major podcatchers. But let's get in the music. That is what we are here to do here on the Jukebox Roundtable. We have a selection of stories that we're going to talk about this month, and then we'll have a discussion. The first story I wanted to bring up, and this broke uh, yesterday morning, is that a new Prince album is going to include unreleased music from The Vault. Now, when Prince passed away earlier this year, we were notified that Prince has a literal vault. A, a giant vault with a giant door filled with music that he never released. He was a very prolific artist, so much so that a great deal of what he recorded never actually was released to the public. So this new collection is going to include 40 songs. It's really more of a of a best of with a couple deep tracks because only one of them is actually a new song from the vault, which I have some mixed feelings on. I feel like it would be really cool to let his fans access some more of those, especially now that he's gone. But if you are someone who has never been uh, too in tune with Prince, maybe you've never really listened to his music, this might be a good opportunity to explore it. The album is called Prince Forever with the number four in it. It is the worst album name. It's just awful. I'm sorry. That's not good. Uh, what do you guys think? Is this something you guys would care about at all? Uh, maybe. Um I, I'm usually of uh, mixed feelings on uh, an artist dying and then a company releasing their unreleased material. A lot of it isn't very good. A lot of it isn't ever intended to be heard. That's why it wasn't released while they were alive. You know, you look at you look at the amount of stuff that's come out. You know, after Hendrix died. You know, and a lot of it is just these long rambling jam sessions that he never intended That's very to be true. released. But, um, you know, his what is it? It's like his half sister or something that got control of yes. the rights to That's everything. True. And then it becomes about um, putting out volume in order to make money as opposed to the artist actually having creative control over what the public hears. What do you think, Harry? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. You know, I think, too, what it does is it, it may take away from the art and what was left with his legacy, too, because like like Phil said, you know, it's not something that he could have any control over. So they're going to, you know, release it as is. It's kind of like Nirvana did some of that. You know, they find this here and that there and they just kind of throw it out there. And again, you know, it's more of a... You know, there was a reason why it wasn't out there. It wasn't finished. It wasn't what he wanted. The sound wasn't right. And I think, like, 
as a podcaster, you know, there's things I've done that I haven't released or I want to go back and fix, <laughs> you know, and if I didn't have the control over that, and I've done that with art and other things like that. And if, and if it's not out there, when I pass, there's a reason for it. Keep it in the family, keep it in the vault. You know, it's more, you know, I'm looking at it more as, you know, it was just stuff that I did, maybe a little something more for you to, to remember. But man, it just don't make money off of it. I mean, it's almost it, it cheapens it, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a very interesting take on this. And that's something that we see a lot nowadays, particularly we could argue that's happening with Bowie right now. Bowie has a new collection of music coming out very shortly that is in, entirely just a repackaging of things that have already been released, but a really grandiose repackaging of it at a very high price. And I have some mixed feelings about that because I think you should just go listen to the albums and not necessarily need this ridiculous package that is in, you know, quote unquote, honor of his passing. Uh, this is an interesting collection because it is also going to include a pretty nice booklet, uh, 12 pages of photographs. I'm a sucker for a good booklet. And, uh, and again, can we, can, do you, am I the only one that thinks this is an awful name for an album? <laughs> no, no. Hmm. Pr- Prince yeah, is notorious for those awful number, uh, number puns, I guess you would call them in his titles, you know, like great songwriter that he was, that guy could not write a GD title. <laughs> Uh, without making you roll your eyes, you know what I mean? Um, right. No, it's a terrible, it's a terrible name. But the, it sounds like a well curated uh, best of that is pulling from a lot of different eras. Um, and see, I'm okay with like the best of type. Oh, of I'm thing, fine with that know? as well. I'm okay yeah. with that too. And then maybe, you know, if they do like a compliment compilation of a best of, and then they go through and, you know, they're like, Oh, and we kind of found this too. You know, we're just throwing that in here. You know, don't take it for what it is. It's just face value. It is what it is. You know, um, there's not a lot, you know, that we can say about it, but here's something else just for those fans out there. And I mean, I do get that because, I remember when Nirvana, um, when, you know, uh, Kurt Cobain died, I was like, no, I'm like, how are we going to get more Kurt Cobain-ish music? Like, how is that going to happen? And it's like, you know, here's 20 years later or whatever, um, and some, and, uh, you know, they're finding little things here and there. And it's kind of neat, you know, to kind of see the interworkings of him because I am a fan, you know? And so it's like, you know, you're reaching out to that fan base and you're saying like, hey, you know, um, we're trying to give you a little bit of something extra, but I mean, I don't know. It also feels like taking advantage of that too, but I guess that's how you make money in this industry. Yeah. And, and, and there's perhaps a fine line. I would argue that as long as we're talking about Bowie, uh, the new Bowie Lazarus cast album record, which came wow, out that earlier took this 10 week. minutes for you to bring it up. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and that came out and it's it's pretty good. Um I have a couple issues with some of the tracks, but it is pretty good for people who are not aware. Uh there is a musical called Lazarus that is based in the music of David Bowie and they released the cast album uh and on the third CD of the record or the end of the second CD, the third vinyl record depending on how you buy it includes the last three tracks that David Bowie ever recorded before he died during the Black Star sessions. Now, this is kind of a weird culmination of like good and bad with this, I would argue, because the good is that we get to hear Bowie's last songs, which is perhaps intimate. And perhaps if he had not wanted those heard, there's a reason he left them off the record. But I think historically, that's somewhat out of David Bowie's hands because he is such a 
uh, icon in some ways where we do want to hear that. And then on like the other side of it, the only way you can get the Bowie recordings is if you buy the deluxe edition of the rest of the cast record, uh, including MP3. Like you can't just buy the MP3s of the Bowie version. It's their album only. Yeah, so I don't know how I feel about that, uh, but it is cool to see some of this stuff coming out. If you're a Prince fan, that may be something you want to be on the lookout for. Moving on, though, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has announced its nominees for 2017. It's important to note that these are nominees. They are uh, going to be narrowed down. Only, you know, four, five, six of these will actually make the cut. That includes Bad Brains, Chaka Khan, Sheik, uh, Depeche Mode, uh, ELO, uh, the Jay Giles Band, Jane's Addiction, Jet, uh, Janet Jackson, Joan Baez, Joe Tex, Journey, Journey is there. Yes. Um, there's that. <laughs> Kraftwerk, MC5, Pearl Jam, Steppenwolf, The Cars, The Zombies, Tupac, and Yes. There's some very interesting uh, names there. Is there anyone that you guys would like to see make the final cut? The cars. Uh, there's a few I'd like to see yeah, on, there. on there. But the cars came jumping out at me. I mean, I love them. Uh, they're you know so influential back in the uh, the uh, late seventies, early eighties, and even you know well up until the nineties. They're just uh, such a great band. So I would love to see the cars kind of like rocket through that one. So and that, I think they epitomize basically that, that the eighties, don't Carrie. they? Huh. Um, that that hits the nail on the head for me is like I think the Hall of Fame should be influential people. It should be people who moved rock and roll forward. Right. I mean, seriously, Journey. If Journey yeah. had never existed, would we would ever have a ballad? Right. Would we, <laughs> ever, would we ever, ever have a high school dance? Exactly. Uh, yeah, right. What happens, you know, like, prom stops in 1982. <laughs> like, but I mean, some of the stuff ELO. I think Depeche Mode. Uh, Joan Baez isn't in the Hall of Fame already. That's really yeah. Weird. Like, how is that not even a thing? And Pearl Jam is is a uh, is yeah, a good one too. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of people come up and down, but they were they were different. You know, well, Pearl I would, Jam. This has to be like their first year of eligibility, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think it would be within their first. I they came after. Did they come after or before Nirvana? Because last year was Nirvana's first year of eligibility. They were right around the same time. I think. I want to say Seattle base that just kind of yeah origin 1990 in Seattle. So Mm -hmm. that's probably their first year. I think Alice in Chains was out ahead of them, and probably some of the Temple of the Dog stuff came out before. Well, see, and that's what what's so important about you know um, nominating Pearl Jam because you know um, I think that there were there was this little Seattle boom of this style of grunge music, and so many did it. But there were only so many that did it well. Right, exactly. The thing was, is Pearl Jam was one of those bands that really came out and shocked you. It was almost kind of like, um, oh God, I'm terrible at band names and stuff like that. The losing my religion guys. What the heck are they? Uh, REM. REM. You know, you always had these. <laughs> my boyfriend's laughing at me. He's like, you never remember anything. <laughs> but uh, um, you know, it's one of those things where you you ha- it invoked a feeling and. I will never forget the day that I listened to Jeremy and I watched Jeremy on MTV. Oh, that which, video was so crazy. That video was, yeah. was amazing. You know, the um, the music was astonishing. And I just 
felt. And, you know, this was right at my peak in high school. So I was years old, but I was probably like, I think I was either, <laughs> let's see, in 1990, I was a uh, sophomore. So, I mean, yeah, me I li- yeah. I lived this music and I'm sure you did too. You know, the, the Pearl Jams and the Alice yeah, in Chains. Yeah, the whole and, Seattle wave, yeah, you know, was It big. was a real big deal. And it, it made you feel, you know, something, you know, like you could change the world really and that that you were important and that um you had a voice and this was the first time i ever felt in my life that i actually had a voice and maybe i could change the world so i 100 want to make sure that you know uh pearl jam like gets in because i feel that they really do epitomize and, and represent that era so so well it 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 taught me that popular music could have meaning Yes. It could it could be deeper than uh, the hair bands were doing right. and Top 40 was doing, that they could get radio airplay and be a Billboard Top 40 album and, and not still cheese have it out something either. to say yeah. without selling out, you know, and I see uh, Tupac's on this list, uh, mm-hmm. rap, I was totally oblivious to it at the time, but they were mm-hmm. doing the exact same thing, you know, like, right. that was a day of like Public Enemy and, and uh, rap groups like that, uh, mm-hmm. Wu-Tang. You know, they were coming out and they were they were doing the same kind of thing on on that side of the coin, saying we can be popular without being sellouts and without losing our message in here. And that's what a lot of Seattle was, I think, to a lot of us uh, that were there at the time. It was such a sea change from what we had been fed before. Mm -hmm. These are people who definitely, I think, deserve. And, you know, this is maybe their first year of eligibility. Maybe they won't get in. But, I mean, eventually, I, I seriously think they need to be saving they space in that be. hall for, for these bands that that really took leaps and bounds forward. Yeah. Definitely. And you mentioned uh, Tupac, which I'm very happy you did because I did, I did want to touch on him. There's always, there's always controversy over whether or not the hip-hop artist should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They should be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hip-hop is – is because keep in mind the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If we want to be strict in rock and roll, Joan Bias should not be nominated Joan either. Joan Bias shouldn't be it there. The a, old uh, blues guys shouldn't be there. Right. Uh, all, it, is a, it is a rock and roll mentality within the popular culture of music. That is what it is. And the 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 rock and roll ability to experiment and be artistic and be poetic, all within the realm of remaining uh, popular and compelling and interesting to young people and all sorts of different things that rock and roll exemplifies and tupac if you go back and listen to records like uh tupacalypse now that was the early 90s i think it was 91 that is such an insightful record and unfortunately i think tupac later in his life before he passed away uh i think he got a little bit dragged down by the grandeur of being a hip-hop artist, and I think that reflected in his music because he went from being very uh, insightful about the streets and the places he was coming from and the society in which he was living, and, and he kind of turned into the stereotypical, like, all my bitches round me with my money. And that... <laughs> so, and that... About the time he started being bit. in movies, uh, I, th- I think it started taking a turn, and he became yeah, a celebrity yeah. as opposed to just being a... Uh, uh, you know, like a hip hop poet kind of kind of guy, right? And he was a remarkable songwriter. So I, I'm I'm happy he's on this list. Outside of what we've already mentioned, uh, you know, Carrie mentioned the Cars at the top. I think the Cars are a, a great band for inclusion. I think Kraftwerk makes a lot of sense because there are so many acts that cite Kraftwerk as an instrumental piece in their you know sonic history. Kraftwerk mm-hmm. has definitely inspired a lot of acts, uh, and perhaps. 
I know ELO has some stuff that is very uh, jingly, but at the same time, the production of ELO and the songwriting prowess of Jeff Lyon is is uh, unmatched. Yeah, in some he's, ways. He, uh, uh, Je- Jeff's great. Um, all his stuff through the Wilburys and everything. Is he in as a solo guy yet? Has or he as done a solo stuff? Uh, yeah, oh, Jeff Lyon. Is he in as a producer? Jeff Lynn, yeah. Yeah, I said Lion. That's because that's because I know someone named Jeff Lyon. Uh, yeah, Lynn is a is a producer. He produces a lot of stuff. He produced all of the George Harrison records from right. the late '80s onward. He produced the Beatles anthologies. Uh, nowadays, he still produces. So that's kind of been his main outlet for creative expression. Less so the music, even though ELO did get together last year. Oh, did they? So, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, they did some sort of brief reunion thing. If I remember, well, maybe it was this year. Oh, yeah, it's this year. It's literally happening right now. So <laughs> they're, they're playing right now somewhere in the world. Uh, yeah. So if you are in Perth, Australia, December 3rd, <laughs> go see ELO. They uh, might be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I have a friend right in now. Perth. Maybe I'll give them a call. Yep. Uh, okay. So it looks <laughs> like that's happening right now. Moving on, a couple quick stories. Uh, I don't want to spend too long on these, but I do want to drop a mention of them. First of which is Hamilton uh, released yesterday. Uh, yeah, yesterday. So October 21st on Friday on PBS is in a documentary style film called uh, Hamilton's America. It has excerpts from the play. It has behind the scenes stuff. It weaves it very elegantly into the historical context of the play. Hamilton is a wonderful musical, in my opinion. I mean, pretty much everyone's opinion at this point. But for me personally, I think the the culmination of American of early American history and hip hop is like the most interesting thing and they do it so well. And a lot of people, unfortunately, just don't have access to Hamilton. And that's the reason I wanted to bring this up as a news item because Hamilton's very expensive. It sells out very quick. Uh, it's not in a lot of places. It moved from Broadway here into Chicago and now it's here in Chicago and then it'll branch out from there, I'm sure. So if you would like to get, you know, a professionally produced glimpse of what Hamilton is in an extended way, you can do that on PBS right now. In fact, they're streaming the whole thing on PBS's website. It's about 85 minutes long. I would highly recommend checking it out. Do we, did either of you see Hamilton or listen to the soundtrack or have any thoughts on it? Well, I'll tell you this. I need to. Um, I've been meaning to. Um, what's really funny, my daughter uh, has been listening to this for like a long time. And I have a tendency, because she's a teenager, to kind of like not listen to some of the stuff she says because she kind of gets obsessed with it she starts uh she was really into harry potter and all these kinds of things and i mean it's all i heard literally out of her mouth for like years right so then she got onto this hamilton thing and i didn't really know what it was and this is you know uh, back a ways i didn't really know what it was and all of a sudden she's rapping you know like these you know 18th century lyrics and i'm like <laughs> what are you doing i'm like you're driving me nuts just because you know i'm a parent and she's a child kind of an idea and then um, eventually I started kind of looking into this and I'm like, well, this sounds like amazing. So, you know, it's one of those things that 
I haven't listened to yet. I've caught glimpses of it because of her, you know, little little snippets here and there. But it it does seem an amazing thing. And I'm so glad. I'm so, so glad when they when they do something like this, where, you know, he was just recently on Serient Live. He did a really great little stint on there. Um, so it introduced him more to that. And he's really big into, you know, his country and those things and being very active for that. And, um, you know, having PBS do this is amazing because it's just like, yeah, let's let's see what this is all about i mean even if it was like an off production broadway kind of a thing i'd be cool with that too but this is pretty amazing that pbs is doing this absolutely and who carrie is referring to there is lynn manuel miranda who is the creator and star of hamilton even though he has now passed that on he's passed his starring role as alexander hamilton on to the person who was his backup actor on Broadway. So he's no longer in the production. And uh, he is originally from, goodness, is, is it Puerto Rico or is it? Dominican Republic? I'll find Republic. out. You keep talking. We I'll find are out. Looking. He was born in New York. You're not helping me, Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's from somewhere. He's of Puerto Rican descent. Okay, okay there we there go. go. Yeah, Got it. I think I think that's right because there was Good this big. There. Yeah, I think that's why we have little things we can just cut that out. Um, but yeah, it was it, there was some things going on with. Um, oh God, I'm gonna look it up while you guys talk because I'll. Figure it was it a out. John Oliver thing, if that's what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. he went on John Oliver and did a track about about the difficulty of the Puerto Rican political system. Yes, yes, and I yeah, did see that was that, really so. interesting. Oh, Phil, yeah. Just, um, yeah, is this something you've listened to at all? I, I have not listened to it. I know next to nothing except for this is the biggest thing on Broadway since I don't know Cats or something. Um, Book of Mormon, but, but yeah, Book <laughs> of Mormon. Mormon uh, yeah. It's the the impossible thing to get tickets for, and I have heard nothing but good things about it. But I haven't heard the soundtrack. I haven't. Um, I haven't seen it. I know it's a hip hop musical about American history, which is a very very interesting concept. Um, so I might be checking this out on PBS. You should totally check it out on PBS. And at the very least, if you're streaming, if anyone has access to Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, the soundtrack is on there and it's really good. Yeah. It stands on its own as music, uh, which is Yeah, cool. I haven't avoided it. I just have not uh, pushed <laughs> play on it. I should probably right. just do a studio day where I just let that play. Um, oh, yeah. Go for it. I do like about this is that, you know, growing up, you know, in the 80s and everything like that, you know, I was privy to a lot of these great, great musicals. Um, you know, there was uh, Sound of Music, there was, you know, Mary Poppins, there was all these like really fun musicals, Annie, that just kind of stuck with you for the rest of your life. And, you know, I always have found like, as I've gotten older, I'm like, musicals kind of fall by the wayside a little bit, you know, they have to adapt to the new type of genres that are out there. And, I am very excited that this is out there because it really does like almost make a call to, you know, the era of the millennial type of a thing like this, you know, like, hey, there's this history, but, you know, we're going to move it forward. We're going to bring it to you in a new way so that you can digest it and and fall in love with it. And then, you know, what's neat is that my daughter is going to have this, you know, 20 years from now, this is what's going to be on her tongue when she's, you know, singing the hills are alive. That's what's going (laughs) to be on her tongue. So I really find it very, very interesting. That's awesome. Phil, do you have something to say? Uh, yeah, just to, um, I know what Carrie's saying, like I grew up, uh, there were movie musicals being produced in the eighties. My mom, um, was a big fan of like, like you said, the sound of music, 
Mary Poppins. I saw a lot of the, uh, the the real old studio musicals, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I saw all of those when I was growing up. I'm not a huge musical fan, but I am aware of them and I saw a lot of them and I appreciate them for what they are. Um, but I do think it's coming back. I think things like Hamilton, uh, things like Glee. My son watched all of Glee and he joined the chorus this year. Um, oh, neat. He, you know, it's, it's getting kids to sort of see musicals in a newly tooled way, in a different, oh, these aren't these old, boring sage productions that your parents and your grandparents love. You can put it in this setting. Uh, was it Fox just redid Rocky Horror? They did. Um, yep. In fact, we just did Rocky Horror on Geek Cinema. It's going to come out tomorrow. Oh, okay, cool. Oh. Um, but yeah, all <laughs> these things are coming around and um, – I think the musical's on its way back in. It's different from what we grew up with, but I think this next generation of kids is starting to bring it back and and kids like our our kids age carry are yeah, Well, it's our kids. I that think are doing they're going to take it them. forward, right? They're right, being exposed to it. Yeah, and we're like, hey, this is what we had. And they're like, well, we want something like that too, but let's just kick it up a notch. I mean, know? you remember how weird it was when Buffy did that musical episode because there was no musicals on TV. There was no nothing like that. And and now, like, they're really uh, – networks, I think, are going out of their way to produce this kind of stuff. So, right. I, And I you mentioned, Lee, that was a risk. Yeah. That was a risk oh, yeah, when you put huge. that out there because I was like, what is this? I'm right. like, we are – like, nobody's going to watch this. This is corny. This is dumb. Yeah, but, nobody's going to want to watch like, this. Like, everybody remembers that episode, though. Yep. For right. Sure. And hopefully there's also a – there has to be a monetary element to that as well, where they say, oh, we can make this show, but then we can also put this on albums. <laughs> and that, oh, that yeah. has to be something that yeah, is totally. in play to that as well. Uh, so another thing out there that it does an excellent job with combining the youth of our generation and younger people in our generation with music is college radio. College radio is so important. I have been a part of it on WCRX here in the city. Many people I know who have been parts of it have gotten so much fruitful things from being in part of it. Uh, college radio is one of the last bastions in radio that allows uh, a lot of independent expression. I highly encourage you, if you are in your uh, local town or city, to turn on the college radio station near you and do it in a place that uh, – at an unexpected time because I guarantee you if you turn on your college radio at 3 in the morning on a Tuesday, you're going to get a really cool show because they have some kid who is up at 3 in the morning on a Tuesday doing that show for you. And listen to it at other times too. College radio is great. And one of the sponsors of this month's episode is College Radio Day 2016. It's going to be on Friday, November 4th. You should check that out so you can support college radio within your locale. Uh, here's a quick ad for College Radio Day. College Radio Day 2016 is coming on Friday, November 4th. Hey, this is Sean Lennon, and I support College Radio. To me, it's like the beating heart of American alternative you know, music culture in a way. Songs I've never heard, but I move anyway. Tune in and enjoy a national celebration of the day when College Radio comes together. Hi, this is Moby, and I very, very happily support College Radio Day. So join us on November 4th as we ignite the soul of College Radio and declare to the world that College Radio is alive and kicking. Hi, I'm Alanis Morrison, and I support College Radio. 
but I won't do your homework. Please don't ask me. For more information, please visit collegeradio.org. Okay, we are back. Again, support College Radio Day. That's a really awesome endeavor. We only have sponsors here on this show that we genuinely believe in and want to have succeed. And that's a really cool cause, a really cool endeavor. Moving on, we have a couple more very brief uh, news segments before we have our discussion. Chuck Berry turned 90 last week when he announced that uh, he turned 90. I guess you don't really need to announce your birthday, but he did. And he announced that he was going to be putting out a new album next year. It's probably going to be his last. That is the way he is kind of referring to it. And it's his first album in 40-odd years, I think 47. And... It is really interesting. It's all original music. It includes the band that he has been performing with in St. Louis for the past three decades, including s- several of his uh, of his uh, children, and it includes all again all original music from a guy who is ninety years old. This is so cool. What do you guys think of this? I thought he was dead. <laughs> I cannot believe he's still. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, but holy crud! I mean, it's Chuck Berry. That's awesome. That you know, I mean, the founder of rock and roll. It's that's just amazing so i can't tell you that i'm horrible i'm a horrible person no actually that was the reaction a lot of people had actually was they they because here's the thing chuck does not perform live outside of his club in st louis he has been invited to festivals he will not play at festivals in fact he is notorious for being a little obtuse in that regard i know eric clapton invited him a number of times to play at crossroads which is a charitable festival and chuck would not play unless he was paid uh so he doesn't really get out of his shell that much within that realm. My understanding is that his performances are okay. Uh, they're not great. It's more of just a nostalgia trip than anything. But maybe in the studio they can clean up what he's doing and back him with a good band with his with his kids and make something cool. I'm so, not yeah. a huge Chuck Berry fan, um, but I definitely appreciate his contribution. Uh I'd say contribution, but I mean, really, he sort of invented rock and roll. Um, yeah, uh, didn't you see Back to the Future? It's it's, <laughs> it's it's very disputed as to whether or not it was stolen from him or not. He's a guy who I think has earned every bit of bitterness that he has, but I know he is very difficult to work with or reputed to be very difficult to work with. If you've seen any of that Keith Richards documentary, it shows him uh, <laughs> kind of sparring with Chuck Berry in the 80s at a yes. big concert. Um, but he um, – yeah, I don't think the the reaction of I thought he was dead is really anyone who's been out of the spotlight that long who hasn't released an album in four decades and sort of refuses to play publicly um, – yeah, it's sort of natural. It's sort of surprising that he has an album of new material coming out now. Um, yeah, I'm quite surprised at that. And I actually I, I should correct it, myself. Yeah. It's 38 years, not 48. Uh, that's still a hell of a long time. Uh, and yeah, I, I read an interesting article, I believe. I don't want to miss missource it. It might. It was either Vanity Fair or it was Pitchfork, one of the two, where it was about – you know they're having desert trip this weekend and the birth of and and the you know the father of desert trip is having his 90th birthday in St. Louis uh because so many of these artists everyone from Dylan to uh Paul McCartney to everyone in the Beatles to the Rolling Stones they all looked up to Chuck Berry was he the absolute source of rock music not necessarily did he create the rock the modern rock star arguably when Chess Records released Chuck Berry, he was unlike anything you had ever seen. If you are not overly familiar with Chuck Berry, go watch him. 
go watch him on American Bandstand in 1960, you know, 1961. It is incredible. He is owning that stage like artists today can only dream to do. And so I'm really excited about this. I hope it's a good record. Even if it's not, it would be a wonderful little swan song if that's what he's planning to end his career with. Uh, moving on, the Abbey Road Studios in uh, London, of course, they are the studios that the Beatles originally recorded that. They have a program called uh, their Incubator. Basically, it's a tech incubator, which I think is kind of interesting. You wouldn't think Abbey Road Studios would have one, but they do, and they've announced their second group, or rather their latest group, of startups. These are startups that they help fund, music tech startups, the first of which is Audio Hunt. It is an online marketplace and community that gives musicians, engineers, producers, and everyone in between access to the greatest audio gear in the planet. Uh, users can search the database for rare equipment, effects. They can also search the community uh, to find help with mixing, mastering, all that stuff. It looks like it's just going to be uh, a mixture between like a forum and a musician's eBay. Could be cool. I don't know. There's a lot of musicians listening here. They might use that. There's also... Uh, Quates? Crates? It is Q-R-A-T-E-S, so Q-Rates, and it is a, uh, what is it? it? They press stuff for you, marketing stuff, sales, distribution to stores, fulfillment, mastering, all that stuff. And finally, the one I think is most interesting is Scored, which is a startup that wants to help filmmakers customize, control, and interact with music in a whole new way, creating high-quality soundtracks in minutes, cost-effectively, which I imagine would interface with independent artists and composers who are giving Scored the library to give that music to filmmakers, which is kind of cool. Do you guys have any thoughts on any of these? They're all kind of interesting. Well, uh, that I mean, Scored sounds um, like it's just great for indie creators across the board you know um if i'm a indie filmmaker and i don't have the budget to hire a ton of studio musicians maybe i can go on here and find some tracks that are already made and and put them together to use you know what i mean like it's it just seems like something that's um really geared towards helping creatives independence move forward yeah, I agree. And I think the the make it or break it on scored is the pricing, right? It's is is it is it cheaper for you to go through scored right. and use whatever they have for you than it is for you to go license something that you want or pay someone to make something for you or reach out to an artist, a composer and uh, get the rights to use something they've already created. If it's cheaper or equivalent to any of those three things, then it might be something worthwhile. Right. Um you know, I mean, that's sort of when you're talking indie stuff, that's sort of the make it or break it on a lot of it. You know, um, if you're making a web series or a film, you're working in a budget. So it all is about trying to work within that. So, yeah, I, I would I would agree. That's probably that's probably going to be a big indicator as to whether it sinks or swims. Right on. Well, that is the music startups that are in the incubu incu uh, incubator at Happy Road Studios. Moving on to very quick stories. Uh, music executives outlined on musicweek.com what they would like to see from U.S. elections in regard to copyright law and copyright violations. People like the CEO of Sony, of A2IM, of uh, attorneys, uh, CEO of ASCAP. 
all these people, Copyright Alliance, Recording Academy, they all came out and outlined very briefly what their thoughts were. A lot of them were essentially, I, I think, uh, Keith. Oh God! Oh my God! That last name Cooper. He has a complex last name. It's Keith of the Copyright Alliance, a CEO, and he said we need to modernize the Copyright Office. Groups out there are trying to hijack it and make it a policy issue. It's not about politics. It's about having the tools to service the community. And I think he probably sums it up best as to what all these guys are saying and women is that this is an issue that is not necessarily political but is being forced into the political arena because artists are having their music taken advantage of by uh, politicians. And I don't want to get political on this show, but this year, in this specific election cycle, uh, the Republicans have run into this more so, specifically Donald Trump, because he has used a lot of music that artists were not happy he was using. He's had an array, a bevy of artists come out in opposition of him using their music, and a lot of the times he continued to use it. This is not a problem that is exclusive to Republicans. In fact, there are many Democratic candidates who have run into this in the past, though I think one of the reasons it tends to hit the Republicans harsher is because more people... I don't want to blanket this, but a great deal of the music industry and music creators within it tend to lean more liberally, and I think that they take less kindly two more conservative candidates utilizing their music. I don't think that's an unfair categorization of what's happening, but this is a serious problem. Uh, how do you guys feel about the state of music within our politics without going too deep into this? Carrie, what do you think? Well, I think that, like, you know, what's happening, and I mean, without getting super, super political myself, um, you know, obviously Trump brought, you know, into the for, you know, foreground, you know, a lot of these musicians. And I, I think until it offends, people don't really notice it, <laughs> you know, but now it's offensive to a few people. So, I mean, I think it's really important at this point that, you know, something get put into poly policy of some port, some sort, you know, uh, copyright laws and things like that. And you have to, you do have to protect um, the artists at this, you know, this juncture, because I don't know, I, I feel that uh, they're not, um, you know, music is 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 so. Um, well, how do I want to say it? Is more like you know, anybody can really you know get the feeling from music. So it's not really directed towards one political party or one person or one gender or one you know anything. And I guess though, when it does come down and it becomes a little personal, that you know, it's like hey. We need your. We need you to ask permission if we can use this, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and this is something, again, in this political cycle, we have seen uh, REM, uh, a number of other acts come out in opposition of Trump using their music, uh, a lot of them very aggressively. <laughs> and uh, it is a problem in the in the political arena because, uh, you know, especially when the when the purpose of the music is misconstrued to begin with. I mean, the favorite infamous example is Reagan, you know, touring under the, under the umbrella of born in the USA, which right. is not a, uh, a pro USA song at all. Right. No. And the same with Trump, you know, breaking out, uh, in the RNC with, you know, we are the champions, you know, I don't know, a little premature. And, uh, also by, a you know, <laughs> 
uh, a predominantly gay artist. And, and that was really, really offensive to a lot of people feeling that the RNC is not really pro-gay. So, I mean, yes. yeah. And I mean, like I said, I, w- I won't get into that or anything like that, but it was, it was almost a, <gasps> what just happened kind of a thing, you know, and it's almost, it was cringeworthy, I guess you could say. And, and that's, where it comes down to it, you know, and unfortunately, you know, Queen isn't alive to protect themselves and those types of things. So, you know, you do have to have these copyright laws and all these things where they they literally like, Mother, may I? Can I use your music? No. <laughs> no. You had some thoughts, Phil? Well, yeah. And uh, as far as asking permission, I think that's I think it's totally appropriate to ask permission. I get. um I get email requests sometimes. Hey, I saw this thing on your blog. I saw this drawing you made. I'd like to use it in my PowerPoint. I'd like to use it for this and that, even if it's not for profit, if it's some presentation that's being given. I don't know the context that it's going to be used in. I don't know the content of that PowerPoint. It's if somebody is standing up bill. at some white supremacy <laughs> rally and, and, and putting my picture up there to make their point, I don't want to be associated with that. So it is, right. um, you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's out of line for for courtesy. I mean, in yeah, our yeah, absolutely uh, uh, to stand up and say, uh, yeah, I'd like to use uh, your song at my rally and, and you can decide if you want your art associated with this person and what their message is and you know and just kind of blanketing on that a little bit is you know uh like logos and stuff like that you know you definitely 100 percent have to ask permission if you can use like a specific logo in an ad with an ad of yours or those types of things so what makes this any different so you know it's not like i can just put a nike uh, Reebok ad on our Blazing Caribou site and everything will just be okay. You know, they'll be like, wait a minute, what is this all about? They're going to come after me. They're going to talk to me. And, and I mean, YouTube has it where, you know, you're, you're playing a song, um, whether you're on a podcast or whatever, and you just play that song, they're going to flag you. They're going to say, hey, you know, did you get the rights and permissions from this artist to play this? If you did, you're good. If not, you know, we're going to pull it. So I don't see that there's anything wrong with just making it more legitimized and, you know, into a law, really. Sure, definitely. So the, I'm going to put that link in the uh, show notes if people want to check that out. This is something very important, also something that's hopefully winding down shortly. Uh, again, I think maybe the reason the Clinton cl- camp has not had serious issues with this is probably because they only play Katy, Katy Perry songs. Uh, <laughs> you know, You're Gonna Hear Me Roar is at pretty much every Clinton rally. So, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, and Katy Perry is a Clinton supporter, so I don't think she has issue with that. But that's more of me joking. I want to see Hillary come out uh, with dancing sharks and a, a giant Voltron lion that she's riding on. <laughs> You know what? I feel like it, I feel like at this point she could do that. She could do that. I, yes. <laughs> yep. We're not going to get the politics. But in any case, uh, okay, we're going to move into our discussion segment now, and then we'll start wrapping up the show after that. All right, we are back with our discussion segment. I have kept from talking about him, even though there were several opportunities for me to do so in today's discussion, because we are going to talk about him at length right now. Last week, on uh, Wednesday, Bob Dylan was uh, awarded 
the Nobel Prize in Literature for 2016. He was the only person awarded it. I know every once in a while they split the prize chair amongst several people. He is the only person awarded this year, and they have been cited as saying, uh, the Nobel Prize in Literature 2016 awarded to Bob Dylan for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. Now, this has caused quite an outcry. Uh, a lot of people, uh, academics are included, are very happy about this. They say this is great. He deserved this. This is something that it's awesome. It went to a songwriter, and that's probably the majority of the noise, and there has been a lot of noise over this, more so than almost any Nobel announcement I've seen, maybe shy of Obama's, uh, <laughs> which he won for the Peace Prize, not literature, by the way. And then after that, there was a series of kind of more hardline traditional literary hierarchy and and scholars who felt very offended by this. They felt that uh, songwriters should not be equated to what they do. And there's been a lot of outcry there. All you have to do is go to r slash books on subreddit and you will find that. People who are very angry about this and are still angry about this. Uh, finally, before I let you guys hop in, I do want to chronologue what has happened with this. Dylan was awarded it last Wednesday. He did not actually acknowledge that he was awarded it, even though he did play a guitar on stage for the first time in almost five years which maybe was his acknowledgement. I don't know. And following that, he they announced it on his Facebook several days after it happened. He never actually responded to the Nobel Academy, the Swedish Academy. And they put an announcement two days ago on his website, bobdylan.com, that notified people of his win of the Nobel Prize. And that is no longer there. It has now been taken down. Now, this has furthered this discussion because a lot of people feel like he is uh, being arrogant. He is not responding to them. I personally, having followed Dylan very, very closely for many years, I think this is hilarious. I think they should have expected something like this was going to happen because I, I, time he is awarded anything, you have to drag him in in order for him to accept it in any capacity. He really does not enjoy the fanfare around being awarded something. Uh, so it doesn't really surprise me that he has not been publicly uh, conducive to this award. That's not to say he hasn't been privately. So it's a very interesting space. I want, I'm going to start with Carrie, and then we'll move to Phil. Is this something that you think a songwriter, and perhaps in particular Bob Dylan, deserve to be awarded? Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm two for two on that. Um, basically, I feel, um, first of all, with songwriting, you know, it's an art. And, um, you know, it's 100% all about literature. This this guy has run pretty much the gambit between uh, social issues and religion and all of these things that pretty much, you know, what any writer would tackle, whether it's in books or movies, or I'm even going to go far as to say podcasting maybe one day might be out there. You know, there's a lot of pieces written that, you know, we we listen to daily and just because it's it's, you know, auditory or it's in a song or in the form of music doesn't mean that, you know, it doesn't deserve the recognition that um, that Bob has received. Now, I do find it very funny, too, that he's just kind of like, meh, whatever. Yeah. But you know what? <laughs> Most artists are kind of like that. It is kind of like, let me get this information out. I want to create. Let me create. It's not about the award. It's about getting it off of my chest. It's about, you know, me, you know, putting this out there and just making people happy. I do what I do because I like 
the fact that I know that people are listening and, you know, enjoying what I'm putting out there. I don't do this for me. I do this for them. And, you know, it's possible he's the same way where he's just like, hey, I already put it out there. I did this for them. They don't need to award me anything. You know, this is who I am. This is just part of who I am. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's great that he got it. I'm sorry for the people out there that, you know, are these great poets and and literature people but you know everybody should get their fair shake there's a lot of writing out there i would even say in film and stuff like that that what why Definitely. wouldn't it be content you know uh considered so yeah yeah one of my one of my reservations about the argument that a songwriter should not be awarded the nobel prize in literature is that while it has not previously been awarded to a songwriter at least primarily for their songwriting there was one guy in the early 1900s who did write songs Mm -hmm. i know that don't write me in but uh this is primarily for his songwriting but we have given the nobel prize to an array of different playwrights now you can read a good play alone on paper just like you could a good bob dylan song but at the end of the day it is best consumed and and designed to be consumed on a stage being performed to you in some capacity. And I think the parallel there is identical. I don't understand the outcry here. Phil, what are your thoughts? Uh, Mine really mirror carries a lot that um, literature is a wider scope than I think a lot of people realize. And more than I think a lot of people in the quote unquote real literature world are willing to acknowledge. Um, I think there's always a question of legitimacy when you bring in an outsider into something that is, oh shit, I don't know how to put this where I don't sound like a jerk, (laughs) Um, into something that is, I'm going to say, a little bit elitist. Um, Oh, it totally is. When when you bring in something, not just... uh, lowbrow but something popular um in the 90s neil gaiman was awarded a world fantasy award for a an issue of sandman a comic book that he wrote um that played off a midsummer night's dream and he was awarded this thing and there was this huge outcry and immediately after the rules were changed so that comics were no longer um allowed and I, th- this just reminds me of that so much that these are these, um, sort of sort of highbrow people saying, "Well, he's a popular, he's a popular musician. He's not a literature guy." But I, I really think anyone can look back on take the music out of Dylan's songs and its poetry, and I think he's been regarded as that for a long time. I think to write him off as some, uh, you know, top forty songwriter that really doesn't have anything to say is incredibly short-sighted and it's probably being done by people who have never listened to Bob Dylan or read any of his, his lyrics. What do you think, Carrie? Well, you know, in this kind of goes back to a part of a conversation I was, you know, discussing about, you know, um, moving forward in time. You know, the thing is, is 200 years ago, yeah, it wouldn't make sense that we've got this guy who's this, like, you know, poet and writer. I mean, songs were different back in the day, you know, and the thing is, we're growing as a as a as a society. And, um, you know, we've got millennials coming in. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, you were talking about Hamilton. There's some brilliant, brilliant 
little excerpts from from that show and it's just you know they need to be recognized and and it's powerful i mean even the the uh, some plays and stuff like that like uh, rent and those types of things they ma- they made a strong impact on the community and it, and it's just when something like that hits you and we could all we could go all the way back to our beginning conversation about pearl jam where you know you were sitting there and you were watching jeremy and you're just feeling when something changes you you know, and impacts you that way. You know, there's there's a reason behind that. And it should be recognized. Should it be recognized with a Nobel Peace Prize? Why not? Or not Peace Prize, I'm sorry, Literature Prize. Literature. But <laughs> but why not? You know, um it's it's the highest honor that he can receive and it means, you know, so much to the community. And I mean, how great is that for the music industry? You know, so is you know I don't know, maybe that one person who said to themselves, you know, and their little kid and they're growing up and they see that Bob Dylan won this prize. It was like, you know, maybe I could do that someday. You know, that's that could be Definitely. something that I could do because, you know, I'm a writer, but maybe I'm just not the song producer the, the way he was, you know, but I'm a writer and I could, you know, get into the music industry. I mean, it just opens doors and possibilities for things that, you know, I mean, I don't know. People like Phil said, you know, they they do get a little bit elitist and like, oh, this is my group and you're not allowed in it. You know, and (laughs) to me, I just think that's kind of ridiculous, you know, that we have to as a society open our minds, open ourselves up. Creativity is not limited. That's the whole greatness of it. It's so out there. I mean, in working with all the great people that we do every single day um, at, you know, at Blazing Caribou, I mean, I feel that. I feel that there's no limit for us that just, it's just limitless. So I don't know. It's a, I think it's great that he got it. I'm all for it. Right on. Phil, you had, I see you have a thought there. Uh, Yeah, just, uh, I just wanted your thoughts on it. Uh, because you're not only a huge Dylan fan, I know you're a songwriter, Brett. So does this, do you feel like this legitimizes, uh, your creative pursuit in songwriting? Do you feel like this gives maybe a little more credence? Maybe you'll be taken more seriously in the future. Do you feel like this is any kind of pioneering step for what you do? I'm really glad you brought that up because if you hadn't, I probably would have. Uh, <laughs> I I actually wrote a piece called Why Bob Dylan Won the Nobel Prize in Literature. It's going to be up on classic rock history here in a day or two. Uh, I write for them once in a blue moon. But in any case, what I essentially wrote in that piece is that this award, this award is somewhat less about Bob Dylan and more about what it means for someone like him to be awarded this award. Uh, as a songwriter... I love seeing this because it is a it is an acknowledgement that songwriting is on the level of the finest lit it can be on the level of the finest literature in the world. Dylan is now amongst T.S. Eliot, Hemingway, you know, those kind of 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 authors. And I think that that's a very poignant thing because when you have someone like him, and I think what's very, very important is that a lot of people look at Dylan and it's like, oh, he's got a whiny voice. And he wrote all those, <laughs> he wrote all those, you know, blowing in the wind and, and the times they are changing. And, that, and that's, that's semi valid. Uh, he does have a ridiculous voice at times. And he did write all of those, you know, civil rights ballads that you are familiar with that are so iconic within our culture. But I think one of the marks of a good, 
artist. And I think this is something that, that Carrie, you could relate to through podcasting and Phil, you could l- relate to through your, through your art, through your art and, and me through my music and all, and all those things is that the mark of an excellent artist is the ability to continue to be a good artist and be prolific and not just be prolific, but be prolific with an increase in quality over time and a noticeable one. And that's incredibly, right. incredibly hard to do in any medium. And the finest artists of the world that we look back on, the finest authors, the finest of everything are people who are able to do that unless for whatever reason their lives are cut short. But if we look at someone like Buddy Holly, would would Buddy Holly have continued to make astoundingly good music? That's very, very likely. And I think that's important because we look at Dylan and we look at, you know, yes, he did Blown in the Wind. Yes, he did The Times Era Changing. And those are two albums of nearly 50 of the course of over right. five decades, he put out an album this year and one last year and the and two years before put out an incredible record with 12 minute songs that it's, are all yeah. lyrics. So he is someone who has throughout his life created artistry in a really unique way. And Carrie There's mentioned no single snapshot of his career. You can't exactly you can't judge his whole uh I'm going to call you back because I listened to the round table today where you had to defend the Beatles. Um, where, where <laughs> with the Grey Estates people. And you were sort of like, you can't listen to the first five years of the Beatles and then write them off as, as you know, non uh, pioneering, you know, like, like there's two different, uh, there's two different time periods of the Beatles and Dylan, you know, is, is more than two. He's, He's, uh, you know, every few years he was doing something drastically different from the time before. And it's just, you know, he has, he's one of those guys like Picasso who has periods, he has stages and, and everybody gets to pick their favorite and, and definitely, and his poetry, I think is spread even in that, that folksy stuff was very Pete Seeger kind of poetry. Oh, yeah, I definitely don't want to discount the folksy stuff. I want to make that clear. I, I, I think just, he's been I a think poet. A lot of people only look at it. Yeah, I think he's been a poet through his entire career. He was just talking about different things. Definitely. Carrie, you had your you had your hand raised. Yeah, and it was just funny cuz he says Pablo Picasso and I'm like, "Dang it, Phil, that's who I was going to like talk about cuz I feel Sorry, Carrie. It's okay. No, no, I'm just teasing you, but like Pablo Picasso is is a great one too that you that you touch base on, Phil, but also Brett how you were saying that, you know, they started out, you know, um as good artists. I and mean, he was a, a fantastically well-trained, you know, Spanish painter. His father got him the best education and all of those things, but he didn't get good until he got old, you know? And I mean, really good, you know, it's like he found his stride and everything like that. And like you said, you know, to be able to watch the progression of him growing into a better artist and, you know, people liking it from the get go and just loving it to death when he's, you know, older is, is definitely something that Dylan has. And, you know, and, and not a lot of artists do have that where they kind of, and I'm going to throw this out there and I'm sorry if you're a fan of hers, but Madonna, I feel has became one of those people that have just kind of grown stale and she hasn't grown much as an artist for the last, you know, few years for me. Um, I feel that, you know, uh, she peaked, and she's just kind of plateauing. Now, there's nothing wrong with that as an artist. But is she, in my opinion, more of a uh, Nobel Prize winner? No. Is she a great artist? Yes. But 
you know, will her songs and music carry throughout the, you know, throughout the land of time? Who knows? Who, you know, who's to say? But, and that's just my own personal opinion. You can send your, your, send your uh, Madonna hate mail. Yeah, to, my hate mail to right to, to Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> oh, turn around and high five Guy Ritchie now. Why don't you? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I enjoy her. Don't get me wrong. She is from my hometown. So shout out to Rochester, you know, Michigan. But, you know, um, whatever that's worth you know she she did come on the scene and make you know very um uh, you know she's she's hall of fame worthy in my opinion but you know nobel prize i don't know she was very cutting edge when she first came Mm -hmm. out but she did she did sort of stop Mm -hmm. she stopped taking chances uh Mm -hmm. a few years in yeah i get i i know what is is that is it she became a parent you know, she I think she became, just became comfortable, you know? like a lot of artists do. Sure. They they get to a point where they they stop experimenting, they stop taking chances. They they realize, oh, this is this is where I'm getting paid. Okay, and right. and I mean, I'm, there's nothing wrong with getting paid, man. Right. But, but you gotta make um, these. If mistakes. you want to be an artist and you want to go forward, mm-hmm. I I know what you're saying, Madonna. I don't think right. is is doing that. She's not. She's not reinventing. She's not. Mm-mm. Uh, pushing the envelope anymore. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like you've got to make these mistakes. And I mean, I always love telling people how many mistakes I've made in my life. I'm like, I am the biggest mistake maker. But from that, I've learned so much and I keep moving forward. And the thing is, is you can't, you know, you have to do that to kind of propel you to figure out like, oh, okay, well, that didn't work out, but maybe this will. And I'm going to keep doing that until I die, man. You know, so I mean, you know, does that make me Nobel worthy? We shall soon see. <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late. Book that uh, flight and, to uh, Switzerland there, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing I think is important is the context in which the Nobel was awarded, because they said for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. And I think that's important because when you look at Dylan and you look at the early folk stuff and then you look at the rock stuff, because when Dylan put out his rock music, when he went, you know, electric and bringing it all back home in 1964, the Beatles responded with rubber soul. That is not a coincidence and never mm-hmm. has been. And then the world responded to rubber soul and later Revolver the next year, and the, and music was changed forever. And I think that's really important, because then you look after that, and Dylan went back into the American folk style, but this time mixed it with Western folk, and did stuff like John Wesley Harding, stuff like Nashville Skyline, uh, did a lot of work with Johnny Cash in Nashville. Yeah. Throughout the 70s, he explored the traditions of blues very heavily, and went back to his folk roots. In the late 70s and early 80s, he very heavily explored gospel, and a uh, and people joke about the gospel period, but it is a very good period of his music. He why wrote not? some incredibly good gospel songs. Yeah, throw that in there. It's like I don't understand why people like they're they're like, okay, I like doing this one thing, and that's all I'm going to ever do. You know, right. it's like throw yeah. it in there, give it a try. You know, it's it's not going to hurt you. You know, I mean, we you know podcasting is fun, but you know we're we try different things all the time. You know, I'm like I don't know, let's do a heavy metal MMA podcast. Why not? I haven't know nothing about mm-hmm. it. Let's do it. You know, and and that's the thing. It's you know, you wanted, I, I mean, I really like him because I think he would be a really good person to like, um, 
to stock money in just because he's so diversified. He's all over the board, but he's learning from each experience and growing and creating this masterful experience that we're starting, you know, that we see now. And it's just, it, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an amazing, he's an amazing person. He has an amazing history, you know, all the way through. Um, it wasn't in the traveling Wilburys too. For a yeah. I was while. actually going to, that's actually where I was going to go next. Oh, so bring it after, around to Jeff. Lynn right again. There you go. Right. So like in, uh, so after the gospel period, which I, I would argue ended about the end of 1983, he then started writing secular music again. And this was secular music that was very politically charged, especially about the foreign conflicts of the 1980s, in particular Israel state within the world. Uh, you know, songs like Union Showdown off an album in 1984 called Infidels, which was produced by Mark Knopfler, actually, of The Dire Straits. Oh, wow. uh, and then okay. after that, he going into the late 80s, he started writing a slightly more American folk, but then started delving into the Traveling Wilburys, which is regarded as one of the most interesting supergroups of all time. You know, George Harrison, Jeff Lynne, Roy Orbison, uh, and Bob Dylan, and who else? Tom, Tom Petty. Yeah. Right. And that's a great supergroup. Then moving into the early 90s, he won several uh, – uh, not Oscar. <laughs> he won several Grammys uh, in – the early 90s for his efforts in American folk. He put out two albums that are only traditional folk songs and they're like really deep cuts. There are songs you'll never hear anywhere else and he explored those. Then in the late 90s and his late 50s, he won album of the year in 1997, beating out Paul McCartney and Radiohead in 1997 oh, wow. for an album called Time Out of Mind, which is one of the most compelling American album. albums yeah. ever written. It is absolutely fascinating. Everyone owes it to themselves at some point in their life to listen to Time Out of Mind because everyone will relate to it. It's a breakup album to the nth degree, and it's so poignant. Moving past that, in the early 2000s, he started writing American blues rock, stuff like Mississippi, High Water for Charlie Patton, Thunder on the Mountain, stuff that was very reminiscent of Delta blues mixed with Chicago blues, and fascinating stuff that he won another array of Grammys for. Then moving later into his career now, he's interpreting he's interpreting Sinatra songs. <laughs> like hmm. and that's the one thing that's up for I would I would say is up for debate on whether or not it's good. I do like it. I'm biased there, but he is doing it and it's remarkable that he's doing it. But that's a point of like what Carrie said about, you know, him being diverse like if he was a stock you know, if he was an investment, you would invest in him because he's diverse. That's the thing about being a Dylan fan is even if you don't like him doing big band standards, you know, screw it. In in two, three years, he's going to put something else out and it could be totally different. And that could be for you. You like the folk stuff. Oh, yeah. You like the Nashville stuff. You like the gospel. Somebody he's got something for everybody. And I I think you could argue that each one of those phases has influenced it has a ripple effect like he did the american folk stuff and you could argue that without that we wouldn't have springsteen's uh pete seeger tribute like 10 years later which is awesome it's an awesome album of oh yeah of folk seeger sessions um you know it's 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 not that he wasn't influenced by seeger already it's that he looks at that and goes oh i could do an album of folk you know what i mean like so each, you know, the the you can see. Uh, you talked about him singing with Johnny Cash. You can look at Cash's career at that same point and see that he was taking off in a different direction too, yeah. and and I becoming know. more folksy. And they were sort of yeah. meeting in the middle. It was just he had such an influence on everybody 
who heard him at every point in his career. It's amazing. Absolutely. So I will I will close with something Dylan related. I do want to very briefly do the final thing we always do on the roundtable, which is where we go around the horn. And this is we'll do plugs after this. But uh, I want to hear what everyone is currently listening to. That can be new. That can be old. If there is a new release that you have that has recently come out or is coming out that you would like to let people know about that you're interested in uh, or just anything like that. So for me, uh, real quickly, the new Leonard Cohen album is spectacularly good. Anyone who has ever been a Leonard Cohen fan at any stage in his career and everything we've said about Dylan to a degree can be said about Leonard Cohen as well. Uh, his new album called uh, You Make It Darker is absolutely astonishingly good for a man who is 84 years old, 10 years older than Dylan. Uh, well, nine years older, I believe, is he's making some phenomenal music. So that would be my pick, if you will, for people to be listening for right now. Uh, Carrie, what do you got? What do, what do you think is on your plate right now musically? Oh, my God. Musically? Oh, my God. I'm, I'm horrible. This is like the worst question to ask me because I never have time to listen to anything. Okay, so um, what are you currently listening to then? Um, podcasts is, is what I kind of get into um, more than anything is just uh, you know, but I do listen to on occasion um, Amanda Palmer is one that is always my go to uh, I absolutely love her um, I listen to her I, I'm really really bad this is the one thing I've always told people I'm like I am really bad with band names and all that kind of stuff it's like i listen to songs and then i sing them back and they're in my head and it makes me <laughs> happy so you know i'm like yeah i like that or i dig this or i dig that you know so music is a part of my life but i had a little stint in my life where i actually didn't listen to music for about eight years and um it was a it was a tragic time in my life and so because of that i slowly have been brought back into it. My boyfriend has been bringing me back into it more and more. And I'm just like, I never have time. And I'm like, Oh, that's an interesting song. Put that in my Spotify. So it's like, you know, at this point, I have to look up in Spotify and see what I like. But yeah, <laughs> right on. That's totally good. Yeah. <laughs> well, good on you, James. Keep doing that. Yeah. Keep it. Keep injecting music into Carrie's life. Yeah. And uh, Phil, what are you listening to right now? Um, I have been pretty much in heavy rotation has been the new John Prine album for me. Yeah. Uh, came out maybe two weeks ago. Great record. It's called For Better or Worse, and it is a album full of duets with female singers. Uh, a couple of them are on there more than once. Susan Tedeschi's on there, and she's amazing. Uh, Leanne Womack has a couple songs. Iris DeMent. Um, Miranda Lambert. Let's see. Well, his wife is on here, Fiona Prine. Yep. And Alison Krauss, she has a good one. It's just, it's, it's such a great album. And I am a, uh, I am an unabashed John Prine fan for about the last dozen years. I kind of discovered him by accident as an adult and, uh, and jumped way in. So the fact that he is in his, uh, early seventies. Yeah. He's oh, early seventies. He was just on Mark Marin. He said how old he was. I think he might be 70. Um, and he's still putting out new music and people are lining up to record with him and he survived throat cancer and can still sing and, and all of these things. He's just an incredible man and, and an incredible songwriter. And one of those people like Leonard Cohen, like Bob Dylan, his voice is not a technically good voice. I shouldn't enjoy listening to him as much as I do, but, um, but I do, and I buy all these albums he keeps coming out with, um, and and I'm just 
loving the hell out of this one. That's an awesome suggestion. Uh, two things I would mention on that is, A, someone who did a very specific kind of album like that that I think Prine took inspiration from was Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson had all of those women on a record two years ago called uh, For All Those Girls, okay. which was him doing all of his – albeit they were not new songs. I'm a it was big Willie Nelson fan hits. too. I have not che- – I can't keep up with Check his releases. Yeah, he's, he's releasing stuff all of yes, the time. constantly. And uh, that is him with Alison Krauss and Miranda Lambert and Mavis Staples who – Oh my god, really? really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, doing all of his songs and great record. So, And then the other thing I would mention on John Prine is for people not familiar with him – it is very unique for an artist to come out of the gate as well polished as John Prine did. John, uh, I mean, Bob Dylan certainly did not do this. Bob Dylan's first record is nothing in comparison to a second. Uh, Leonard Cohen did this very well, but John Prine in particular, his first album is remarkable. Yes, it is. Like, go to his first album and listen to Sam Stone. That's the track I would direct the people to. Saddest song of all time. <laughs> and then realize that an early twenty-something was writing that song yes. and put that on that record. It's a, it's incredible. Uh, Paradise is is also yes. a, such a such a that thing has lasted forever, and it's one of my favorite songs in his whole catalog. It came out in his first song when he was a mailman, you know, and recorded that. Um, exactly and, I have and Sam Stone came from him being in the service so good with all those pops and, and everything like it was supposed to do but um, yes yeah I just I love that album I love Angel from Montgomery all the stuff Bonnie Raitt took from him and 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 covered and just he's he's an incredible songwriter uh, first and foremost so it's yes I uh, I wholeheartedly recommend everything Prine um, Definitely. But if you want a I'm good place to, to start, that you said something, Phil, because like I recognize the Paradise song. I'm like, who's John Prine? Yeah. <laughs> like, again, it's no. If you don't to... know John Prine, you know John Prine. You've heard yeah, his music exactly. somewhere before, okay. even if it hasn't been sung by him. You've you, exactly you know his. Well, work. yeah, and that's it. Goes back to me. Like I really don't remember. I, I don't know what it is about me. I've done this since I was a little kid. You know, I'm sitting here singing like a virgin. I'm like, I don't know who sings this, but you know, I mean, I've done this since I was a little kid. So then I just I looked up John Prine. And I went, oh my god, I'm yeah. So, dumb. so he's got a new album that's exciting. I'm gonna go. You know, play around with that. That's great. It's fantastic. oh yeah, and in fact, in fact, I would recommend this to Carrie and anyone else listening. Uh, start with that first album of his and just just go from there. Yes, <laughs> because it's not very often that there is a catalog so finely tuned that anywhere you hop into it, especially at the beginning, you're going to get something awesome out of it. Neat. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode. What I'm going to do. I'm going to close with something kind of unique. I do want to go around the horn one more time and get some of our shameless plugs. Carrie and Phil are really cool people. You should check out what they do. Carrie, where can people find you online? Oh, they can find me all over the place. They can actually just Google me and probably find me. But you can catch me at BlazingCaribouStudios.com. You can catch me on Twitters um, at Blinkin Park and the the actual. Uh, I'll have links to all this in the show notes yeah, too. The, the, it's so dumb, but the, the E is a three, and it's just somebody took my name, <laughs> and I had to do what I had to do. But uh, but I've had that forever. Um, and uh, you can catch me on Facebook right at my name. So Carrie Sims uh, one, I think, is what it is on Facebook. So. Awesome. And what about you, Phil? If you can find Carrie, you can find me because I am riding her coattails all the way to the <laughs> bank. Um, <laughs> now, you can find me at philrood.com, P-H-I-L-R-O-O-D.com. And that has links to all my social media. That has links to my store, my sh- short story blog. Uh, basically, everything I'm doing can be gotten to from there. It's a good central hub 
uh, for me. So philrude.com, you can get to anywhere you need to be from there. Awesome. And I would actually extend your plug and say that if anyone is, you know, in, in a place where they are hanging wall art or would like something to accent a, a room, a office, something like that, and you got a little bit of a geeky side to you, then uh, Phil's art is really incredible. And the, all the stuff he's currently selling on his website is original art at very affordable prices, and especially in contrast to other artists who sell the original art. So they're not actually prints. Uh, which is really rad. So yeah, check that out. Yeah, jump on it now before anybody knows who I am. You can get it real cheap. So I'm Exactly. Sure. <laughs> That's what you got to do. Uh, Thank you. So that, yeah, of course. You are an incredible artist. Thanks so much, both of you, for being with me. I appreciate it. Uh, we ran a little long this month, and I'm happy we did because we had a great discussion. I'm going to end with a poetry reading, which I never do. And at this point, people are just going to like turn the podcast off. <laughs> but uh, the reason I'm going to do that is because we've talked about Dylan extensively in this episode. As And it's not just us. Rolling Stones podcast this week did the same, and every news outlet right now is all over this story. And we talked about the prolificness of his music, and in particular, his ability to create excellent lyricism over the course of many years, and not just in those formative years that we're all familiar with in some capacity in our culture. And I want to read a quick song called Every Grain of Sand. This was released in 1981. So Dylan was in his 40s when he wrote this song. And let it be known that this song did not, sorry, this album on an album called Shot of Love did not do well <laughs> it's not a very it's not a great album it's definitely not one of his best but this song i would argue is one of his best if not his best i would actually go that far so i want everyone to listen to this and then at the end you can determine whether or not a nobel prize in literature is worthy of this sort of lyricism in the time of my confession in the hour of my deepest need when the pools of tears beneath my feet flood every newborn seed, there's a dying voice within me reaching out somewhere, toiling in the danger and in the morals of despair. I don't have the inclination to look back on any mistake. Like Cain, I now hold this chain of events that I must break. In the fury of the moment, I can see the master's hand and every leaf that trembles in every grain of sand. Oh, the flowers of indulgence and the weeds of yesteryear, like criminals, they have choked the breath of conscience and good cheer. The sun beat down upon the steps of time to light the way to ease the pain of idleness and the memory of decay. I gaze into the doorway of temptation's angry flame, and every time I pass that way, I always hear my name. Then onward in my journey, I come to understand that every hair is numbered like every grain of sand. I have gone from rags to riches in the sorrow of the night, in the violence of a summer's dream, and in the chill of a wintry light. In the bitter dance of loneliness fading into space, and the broken mirror of innocence on each forgotten face. I hear the ancient footsteps like the motion of the sea. Sometimes I turn, there's someone there. Sometimes it's only me. I am hanging in the balance of the reality of man like every sparrow falling, like every grain of sand. And that's off 1981's uh, Shot of Love. And if you don't think that that is worthy of a Nobel Prize in literature, I just can't help you. I'm doing everything I can. That is worth it. That's a phenomenal exhibition of lyricism from a man who was in his 40s and well past his prime at that time that's gonna do it for me that's gonna do it for, for carrie and for phil thanks for joining us on this episode of the jukebox roundtable you can expect a full episode coming out next week have a good one everybody the jukebox podcast is available on all platforms and podcast directories visit the show at jukeboxpodcast.com for more content 
or email us at thejukeboxpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the Jukebox Podcast, please consider rating it on the iTunes Store or in the podcast directory of your choice.